0: Hey guys, trigger warning. This is part one with Jenna Marino and we are talking about three losses today. So we're talking about a blighted ovum. Then we're talking about a miscarriage, likely a chemical pregnancy. And then we are talking about a stillbirth at 22 weeks gestation. If this is not something that you are prepared for, please stop and move along to part two, which is Jenna's birth story of her rainbow baby. If you've experienced a blighted ovum, a miscarriage or a stillbirth, and you are looking for support or hearing a story of another birthing person's experience, then I invite you in to this journey that Jenna takes us on. I have a co-host, Sabrina Lewis, one of my partner doulas here in Charlotte, North Carolina, who is a mother to Dennis Michael, who was stillborn and Emma, a miscarriage. And so Sabrina is here to guide the conversation today with the empathy and generosity and knowledge and skills that I lack in the Department of Stillbirth and Loss. So today I'm a participant to learn and expand when it comes to loss. So trigger warning, please do not listen to this episode if it is something that would feel harmful to you emotionally or physically. Just move on to part two with Jenna's birth story of her rainbow baby. What does a contraction feel like? Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Hey, Jenna Marino and Sabrina Lewis. Welcome to the birth story podcast. How are you guys today?
1: Good. Great.
0: Yay. And I'm so excited to introduce Sabrina Lewis. She is one of my doula partners in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Q City Doula. So you can find her on social at Q City Doula and then on the interwebs at QCityDoula.com. And in case you missed the trigger warning, we're going to do it again. Okay. Jenna Marino is going to be talking about three losses and then a birth story with a live birth. So we are going to talk about miscarriage. We are going to talk about stillbirth. If this is triggering for you, I need you to stop this podcast right now and move on to another episode. Okay? Everybody got their trigger warning? Let's get started. Jenna, thank you for being here. We're really excited that you're going to be raw and open and vulnerable. And I know there's going to be tears shed, but we just really appreciate you telling your story so that other women feel supported if they face some of the things that you have faced and we'll round it out. Like Not everyone has this rainbow baby. But you do. And we have this rainbow baby and rainbow birth story. And so we're really excited to have you here today. The reason I have a co host, everyone, because right now everybody that listens to the birth story podcast is like, why in the world is Sabrina on here? So I'm going to let Sabrina introduce herself first and then let Jenna introduce herself and then we will dig right in. Okay. So Sabrina, tell us why you are here and who you are.
2: Thank you, Heidi. I'm thrilled to be on the podcast today. I have four living children on this earth and I have two angels in heaven who I delivered. Their names are Dennis Michael and Emma. Uh, Dennis Michael actually was born seven years ago on March 10th. And so it's a been a good month for us. We love them and talk about them openly, but their deliveries are what brought me to doula work. And I feel I was called to this because of them, because I was alone with just my mom and my husband in the room when both delivered. And it was scary situation. And I felt very vulnerable. And I looked at my husband and said, if I can help anyone else not go through this by themselves, then I have to do that. And so I do bereavement doula work uh, on a voluntary basis and have many practices here in Charlotte will call me if they have a terminal diagnosis for a baby to help guide the parents through that. It's perinatal hospice care, or if a heartbeat has not been found, they will call me up to be with the mom or birthing person through that delivery and take pictures of that baby because it still is a life and loved and the mom and dad and or parents deserve to have memories of that child.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing. So Jenna, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: So I am a stay-at-home mom now to my rainbow baby. His name is Liam. And before that, I was a nurse in a fertility clinic, actually, while I was going through my own trying-to-conceive journey. So that put a whole special spin on things. I am married to my husband of, let's see, we got married in 2017, so would be four years this year. I always knew that I was going to be a mom. I was the little girl at three years old that if you would have asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be a mom. So I was always really nervous that would I have babies easily? Would I have to adopt babies? I wasn't really sure how it was going to happen, but I knew somehow I was going to be a mother. So that's always been very special and important to me. And we do have two crazy dogs here too. We have a beagle and a basset hound, and they are our first babies. And we live in Northeast Ohio.
0: Wow. So what city is like Northeast Ohio for those of us that live on the East coast and have no idea?
1: (laughs) (laughs) We live in Canton, Ohio. So the closest, like more well-known city, I guess, would be Akron or Cleveland,
0: Okay, I've actually heard of Canton, so oh, yeah. <laughs> I just haven't been there before. So I now I have a quick question: What brought you to be a fertility nurse?
1: Yeah, so right out of school, I was working in the NICU at first, and I had started there because I was there as a nursing aide during school, and so I just transitioned into an. Uh, are in there. And then I always really wanted to do labor and delivery. The whole reason I went to nursing school was because I thought I wanted to become a nurse midwife. And so I really wanted to go and work labor and delivery. And I did, I only stayed in the NICU as a nurse for about three months before an opening, opened the labor and delivery. And I jumped and it was an LDRP. So we did, I did everything. I did the labor, the deliveries, and postpartum care for my patients, and I did that for about nine months, and then I met my husband. I was living about seventy minutes north of Canton at the time, so I was working at a hospital in night shift, and those seventy-minute drives home when I moved in with my husband it was just too much. I say I am th- thankful for the rumble strips on the side of the road because they kept me awake. So that job had to go. As much as I was loving what I was doing, I couldn't do the commute anymore. And so actually that brought me to working at a hospital in Canton and I did postpartum nursing there. And at some point, I can tell you exactly when it happened, but working labor and delivery, I decided that I didn't want to be a midwife anymore. I didn't like the long hours of labor. <laughs> I didn't like the waiting, like when I went into work, give me the patient who's seven or eight centimeters. That's going to do something tonight, but staring at the monitor for 12 hours of an induction was horribly boring to me, unfortunately. <laughs> so that quickly changed my career outlook. So that took me into postpartum nursing. And then after a couple years of that, I just really wanted off of night shift. And some of the doctors I was working with owned the fertility clinic and they were were looking for a nurse and I was like you know women's health has always been something of interest to me I'll give it a go so I went over there and I worked there about two and a half years and then just didn't return after having my son because I wanted to stay home with him but so it just kind of happened that way and I really liked it I really enjoyed it women's health has always been something that I'm more passionate about so
0: yeah, Sabrina and I get that deeply, right? And we also like on as our job as doulas too is helping the parents navigate that early labor, right? Like how to keep your brain occupied, how to move your body. You know, it is like I can understand what you were saying about it being really hard because if the average length of labor for a first-time birthing person is around 24 hours. So, I mean, active labor is probably six to eight hours. So the majority of a labor is a lot of waiting around and a lot of space and time in between surges or contractions. So I love that you found your way to fertility and still in women's health. It's very evident that three-year-old inside of you is still very much alive, you know, helping birthing persons with their birth journeys. So Now I'm glad you get to be a stay-at-home mom, too. So Sabrina and I claim to be doulas, but really we're stay-at-home moms, too, (laughs) when you work for yourself. Okay, so audience, Sabrina is here to walk Jenna through the journey of her three first pregnancies and losses. And then I will pick up as your host again for her rainbow baby birth story. So I'm going to let Sabrina take the mic.
2: Thank you, Heidi. Jenna, it was so great hearing your introduction. And you can see the passion you have for women's services as you talk, and I love it. And I think there's a time and a place, as Heidi said, we were both, are both stay-at-home moms, but as our children are getting older, we're going back to more of a women's services type thing. So I always, it's a time and a place in callings and in our life. So I think that's wonderful. So, Tell us about your first pregnancy. Was it planned?
1: Yes. So we had said that after we were married for a year, we would stop preventing pregnancy, start trying. So September of 2018, I stopped birth control and was excited to start the journey. And of course, there was a part of me that was like, maybe it'll happen right away and it didn't. So I took about five cycles for me to get pregnant. Now working in the fertility office, I was a nervous wreck as we started approaching cycle like three and four. Like, oh, what if I become a patient here? What if I can't get pregnant? And started to get all sorts of nervous. But then I got my first positive pregnancy test in February of 2019. Or Yeah, 2019. Sorry. And we were elated. So the kind of perk of the job I had is that I went to one of the doctors I worked with and I said, I got a positive pregnancy test and I'd really like to get blood work done and know my HCG levels. And he said, of course, no problem. Let's order them and see where you're at. So we did them. I'm trying to remember my first Number.
2: Sorry, just so I can explain HCG levels to our audience, uh, as you progress in pregnancy, those numbers should double every 48 to 72 hours. So when Jenna's doctor said, let's see where you're at, they wanted, I'm assuming, to see. W- so guess dates are a guess, so they can kind of estimate. Conception based on your hCG levels sometimes, so it's just one way of getting a better guess date, but it's not a hundred percent. So yeah, if your doctor, that's the blood work that they'll say to test your levels if you're very early in a pregnancy or if you experience bleeding early on. It's always kind of going to be uh, hCG blood work. Uh, continue, Jenna.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine. So the first number I got back. I want to say it was around 80, which is fine. And it's not super high, but it's definitely a positive. So I'll just kind of throw in there on the nursing side of things, anything over three is technically positive. And we used to tell our patients above 50 makes us feel pretty good. Above 100, Beautiful. So falling in right there around 80, I was like, okay, a little nervous, but we'll see. Maybe I'm a couple days earlier than I thought. Maybe I'm testing a little early because I was also that person with 15 HCG strips all over my bathroom counter because I started testing to see if I was going to get the faintest of lines seven days after I ovulated. I could not wait to find out. So did the blood work and then So 48 hours later, two days later, they like to repeat it. And like you said, kind of watch for that rising number. And it had come back at like 180. So it did double, I was like, okay, this is good. And then, so we thought I was probably right around like that four, four and a half week mark, just finding out very early on. So he said, well, based on your last national period, these numbers look just about right. Let's go ahead and plan to do an ultrasound for you, like around seven or seven and a half weeks gestation, and we can check for a heartbeat and see how things are growing. Great. So the first couple of weeks went on, I felt pregnant. I had some morning sickness my pants were starting to get a little tight. I was in this pregnancy bliss bubble. And so about seven and a half weeks gestation, my husband came up to work at the end of the day, one day, and the doctor stayed back to do an ultrasound for us. And he puts in the wand and I'm looking at the screen and right away, I knew I wasn't seeing Baby, let alone a heartbeat. And I just got quiet, looked at my husband, who wasn't really sure what he was looking at. He is not a medical person at all. And the doctor looked at me and said, I'm really sorry. I'm going to take some measurements, but I believe you have a blighted ovum. And this was the first time, even as a nurse, that I had like had experience with a blighted ovum. I'd heard of somebody having one, but More of like I read it in a chart and, you know, kept going. First time really having it hit close to home.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's hard when it's the first time you're seeing it as a medical professional is on yourself because you think, wait a second, it's not supposed to happen to me. I've been doing it all right. So for our audience, a blighted ovum is where a gestational sac is seen in the ultrasound but there is no embryo inside of it. So there could have been at some point, but not enough to show like mass or a heartbeat. So the sac is developing without the embryo, but Jenna's body was still producing the hormones that made her feel pregnant. So her body was registering a pregnancy and there was a sac, but there was no embryo in the sac is that a correct Jenna?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So at that point they did have me draw blood work again too, to check that HCG level and see if I was, he had asked me if I was experiencing any symptoms or signs that I could be miscarrying, which at the time I had not. So we did do another blood work level and my HCG level was, I like over 10,000. I mean, it was Pretty high. So it was still climbing. My body still thought I was pregnant. That sac that was there was still causing me to have higher HCG levels. But like you said, there was no embryo forming inside. So at that point, he said, You know, you're not seeming to miscarry on your own. I recommend that you have a DNC to go in and get rid of the pregnancy so that you can move forward. So I said, Okay. So 48 hours ish later, I went in back into the office, they did a confirmation ultrasound before they'll take you for a DNC. They have to do an ultrasound the same day of the procedure and just confirm one last time there is no embryo with a heartbeat in there before you go to surgery. So my husband and I went and did that ultrasound was the same result. There was just a sack, which actually the sack was still growing, which was so hard. So then we headed over to the hospital and this was my first experience as a patient in a hospital ever. I was so nervous to be having surgery. I had begged the doctor who I work for to just do it without making me get put under. I did not want to go through the surgery, the process. Being a patient was so scary to me. And now looking back and after that experience, it really helped me relate and feel more empathy towards my patients who are going through the same thing. Just was such a nervous wreck.
2: Yeah. It's so hard. They say medical professionals make the worst patients because we see the outcomes and like scary stuff. And when the scary stuff happens to us, we jump to worst possible scenario. So I can definitely see where you would, would feel and like not want to do that on its own. I can't believe you asked your doctor to do it Without putting you under, I've heard of one person doing that, and I was like, that's cruel and unusual punishment. So, I wanted to find a DNC a little bit for those who don't know. So, I could, I might sit, screw up the name of the word. So, correct me, Jenna, you might know better. But it's a dilation and curatage. Is that how you say it? Yeah, where they dilate your cervix manually and then they get everything out. Uh, of your uterus. So any, the sac would be gone. um, And any, that's how they will do a lot of procedures in miscarriages, or if you're bleeding after, and we'll go into it more, but a DNC is where they dilate you and clean out what is in your uterus that is no longer viable or healthy for you. And there's something also called a D and E. So both do the same thing. It's just dependent on how far along you are when it, your loss occurs. Was your husband allowed to be with you in pre-op
1: or did you have to be there by yourself? So my husband and my parents came to oh. pre-op with me. <laughs> and That's then- wonderful. Yeah. And then they were also there when I got discharged. The actual procedure itself was, they said that I, like from the time the doctor wheeled me back to the OR till the time he came out to the waiting room to let them know that I was being taken to recovery and was done. They said it was probably less than 10 minutes and they couldn't believe that we were done. And maybe an hour later I was up and getting dressed and heading home. So I did have support with me. And that was a really good thing. That's wonderful. Were
2: you having any cramping at that time? Did they give you any medication right away?
1: When I first woke up from the DNC, I was having some very minor cramping. And I remember I had asked the nurse if I could just have some Motrin before I went home. And he said, of course you can do something more than that. And I was like, no, just a little bit of Motrin. And honestly, they sent me home saying I could take Motrin after. In my experience, I didn't need anything. After that first dose of Motrin, right after the surgery, I was fine. I had some very minor cramping for the next day or two, but really felt pretty normal other than, you know, emotionally. Did you have any bleeding or did the doctor take care
2: of all the blood clots?
1: So I had very minimal bleeding probably for, oh, maybe three to four days after the procedure, but nothing more than like a panty liner would cover. For me, I didn't have a lot of clots or intense bleeding after. So he did a pretty good clean out when he was in there for surgery.
2: Yeah. For those in our audience who've had a DMC and did not have that experience that Jenna did, it is dependent on the doctor on how much they vacuum out or what they're comfortable doing or how they were trained. I know on my DNCs and DNE, I did not have a lot of bleeding because my doctors were very meticulous. And it doesn't mean that if you've had bleeding, that your doctors did a bad job. I think it just is how you, how they're trained and how often they do the procedure. Excellent. So And you always saw the doctor you work for, correct?
1: At this point, yes. Throughout like my early pregnancy and fertility journey, I did consult with him. I had an OB who I had seen once for an annual because- (laughs) For years, I was going to my primary care doctor for those things. And she had actually told me when I was getting married, she said, if you are thinking about starting a family, you should go see an OBGYN for your next like, pap smear annual appointment so that you've met somebody and you're established with somebody. So I did do that. There was somebody in the back of my mind that I would call. When I was pregnant and knew that I needed an OB, but at first I had just stuck with one of the doctors I worked with. So that was a whole nother spin on things though, because everybody I worked with knew exactly what was going on. That is hard because everyone heals
2: through that very differently. And I hate that as women and as a society, sometimes we judge each other's grief and how they grieve. For me, I recovered emotionally pretty quickly, because I felt I had a calling and a purpose. And so I felt like my anger was taken from me. But a lot of people kind of judged me and was and said, Well, why aren't you more upset? And so I had to kind of keep it closer to the vest. But did you have any of that in your office? Did it make it more complicated or were you more I don't want to talk about it like leave me alone.
1: I was pretty open to talking about it. I would say for the most part, most of my coworkers tried to acknowledge what had happened, what we were going through. And we're very much like, you know, we're here for you if you want to talk or need to talk about it, or you need to take a day off, let us know those kind of things But nobody really brought it up that much. And this, my surgery happened on a Friday and I was back to work on Monday and we just didn't really talk a whole lot about it and moved forward. Like Bruno? We don't talk about Bruno. Yeah. So that that was a little hard. One of the nurses that I worked the most most closely with, we shared an office. I probably talked with her the most about it. And she had been a fertility nurse for over 25 years. So she was also like a great resource for me. Somebody who I found a lot of comfort in talking about my trying to conceive journey with. And then also now that this miscarriage had happened, I will, (laughs) excuse me, I will say, One of the things when the blighted ovum happened, the doctor told my husband and I, you know, we don't really know why this happens. More often than not, it's that there was some type of genetic issue with what would have been the embryo had it formed. And that's why the pregnancy didn't progress. It doesn't mean that you'll have genetic issues going forward. It just likely was as he said, bad luck, and hopefully this would never happen again. But he said, when you do your DNC, we will send the products of conception out for genetic testing so we can get some answers. And if there is some kind of genetic disorder that looks like it would be passed down from a parent. Then we can look at if you guys need to do further testing. But at this point, we're going to assume it was something minor. The embryo didn't develop and we'll go forward. So life had kind of moved on after the DNC. is just kind of healing and recovering. And then I'll never forget the day I walked into the office and my coworker said, your genetic results are back. They came on the fax this morning. Do you want to see them? Okay. Yeah, I do. I said, Has the doctor seen them yet? And she said, No, I stole them off the fax machine for you. And I said, Okay. So we looked and it was kind of a punch to the gut because it came back a genetically normal assigned male. And I just remember being taken aback. So there wasn't a genetic issue. So we really have zero answers. It almost felt like it would have been easier to accept if there was a genetic issue. Otherwise, you're just telling me that this happened to me for no reason. And that was, that took me a couple of days. I went home and cried it out a little with my husband. And of course, then we showed the doctor and he said, you know, unfortunately, that's almost one of the worst results you can get because I don't have an answer for you. I wish I could give you more information on why this happened, but you know, it probably was a little bit of bad luck. I hate to say that, but you should be able to move forward and have a healthy pregnancy. So we did try to move forward. So this all happened. Let's see. The DNC happened in March and I think it took me about six weeks after my DNC to get a normal cycle back. Like to have a period, and then I started tracking everything, and got pregnant pretty much right away. Find found out the day after Father's Day in June of nineteen that I was pregnant, so we were very excited. But the lines on my home pregnancy tests were faint. But like I said, I was a super have to test early kind of person, so kind of expected them to be faint, but to get darker over the days. Went to work, told my coworker who I was really close with, I'm getting positive pregnancy tests. I'm so excited. We're going to have a baby. And then by the end of the week, realized that they weren't really getting a whole lot darker. So I went back to the doctor that I work with and I told him what was going on. I said, I know I'm testing early. My like quote unquote day to test the appropriate time where you would say I've missed a period and I should be testing would have been two days from when I was having this conversation with my doctor. And I said, they're still really light. I don't feel like my lines are getting darker. He said, of course, what most medical professionals would say and probably what I would tell a patient too is that you can't rely on that. He said, let's do your blood work in two days when you're actually due to test and we'll see what your HCG levels are. And we'll go from there you know, I know it's hard to try to relax. Okay. So two days later I did an HCG level and it was 16. So it was low and I knew right off the bat, this was not going to be good. An HCG level of 16 is probably like, I'm already losing the pregnancy. It's probably already declining. So I was really upset. He said, let's go at this point. Still had no signs of miscarriage, though. I wasn't cramping. I wasn't bleeding, nothing like that. So he said, let's draw it again in two days and see where you're at. So two days later, we drew it and it was 19. So I had gone up, but not anywhere near what it should have been doing. So at this point, he said, you know, we can pretty certainly say that you are going to experience a miscarriage, but you're so early on. Why don't we give your body a week or two and see what you do on your own? And if nothing's happening, you know, you'll let me know and we will do an ultrasound, do more blood work, decide from there how we need to proceed. And I would say it was about six. Six or seven days later, I started bleeding. So I was able to just naturally miscarriage at home that time and didn't need any kind of DNC or intervention. Yeah, that was hard to go through it again a second time. And I was mad. I was angry. I remember telling my husband, it's not fair that this is two pregnancies now. And we don't have a baby or we're not even on our way to having a baby. We're empty handed and I'm mad. Like, I don't even want to try to get pregnant right now. I'm so mad at my body. And we actually took the next month and went on a vacation to Florida and decided we were not going to try to conceive. We were going to prevent it and take a break because I was not in a good mental place anymore. Didn't want to get pregnant when I was in this angry state. About what was happening. So uh,
2: that's very common. Uh, I'm impressed you didn't have as much anger the first time, but definitely the second time, anger is a very prevalent emotion and like betrayal of our body. I'm impressed that you were cognizant enough about your mental state and what you want, when you wanted to bring a baby into this world and how you wanted to feel about that baby. So I think well done in acknowledging that and saying, I need to take a minute for myself. And I had to do that as well for my, after my uh, Emma's loss. And I took six months. I was like, I'm not discussing pregnancy or anything for six months. So I'm glad you guys went on vacation. Yes. So how did you feel coming back from vacation? Was it just life as normal?
1: You know, <laughs> we had quite a few drinks by the adult rooftop pool in Florida and really enjoyed a nice <laughs> five-day break. Didn't talk about What was going on while we were in Florida? We didn't talk about babies, we didn't talk about loss, we didn't talk about trying to conceive. We just went to Florida as a young married couple and had fun for a couple of days and let it all go. And actually, I remember the flight home looking at my husband and saying, I think we have to talk about what we're gonna do now about having a baby. And he was like, (laughs) Okay. If you're ready, we'll talk about it. It was like the vacation was over and I needed, okay, I took my break. I need to talk about it again. And he was really good with that. So we decided that I would wait and see because at this point I was kind of mid-cycle where I was after the loss. So let's wait and see if my cycle even experiences any change or effect from the loss and kind of go from there. So in a couple of weeks when I got a period back, I was like, I don't know. Let's not try, but let's not prevent. And we'll just kind of wait. And sure enough, I got pregnant. So I, which this had me so crazed because here it was, it took us five times to get pregnant the first time. And now two times in a row, we got pregnant right away. And I was like, why is this happening? I mean, I'm not disappointed, but so it's such a crazy experience to go through. So this was August. I got a positive pregnancy test and we were so excited. And of course I went into work and <laughs> told the doctor and he was like, okay, let's do this. Let's get some blood work. And my first HCG level was like 184. So it was like this beautiful high number. And I was like, oh, finally, I this is gonna be it. Like this has to be it. This is great. And so two days later, we tested again. It was over 600. Beautiful. Everything looks great. And at this point, I'm starting to get nervous because I'm getting closer and closer to like that seven week mark where things didn't go so good last time. And we were planning to do an ultrasound right at seven weeks to check for a heartbeat and see how things were going. And I think it was about maybe s- Like two or three days before I was going to do an ultrasound, I had a little bit of a freak out moment and I went to the doctor and I was like, I don't know, I'm so nervous before I go in that ultrasound room, I really want another HCG level. Like I want to know before we go in there and start that my numbers still look good. And he was like, absolutely. Let's order you one, did it. And it came back like over 4,000. Okay. This should be good. I was really excited. So my husband came. Yeah. Sorry.
2: Oh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So what Jenna is feeling is very common uh, with a pregnancy after a while. as you hit the milestones of where things go downhill, you start to have a panic attack and question, and I can't do this again. And you're scared to hope. Uh, I think of getting past that. And we always are like, well, I survived it to this point. I don't know what's coming next. And some uh, birthing people can't even go into the same ultrasound room. I couldn't go into the same ultrasound room. It's like the room of hell in my memory. So that's a very common experience of having to ask the doctor, I need more blood work. Like I need to
0: confirm I'm okay. Yeah. I have a question for you guys too. Then is it the same with dates on the calendar? For me, it is. Yeah. Jenna, because I feel like you're spitting out these dates, like the day after Father's Day, like I feel like you really know your dates, like, as well as like the weeks of gestation that you had achieved. And so for people that are listening, that maybe have experienced loss, I was just wanting to know, you know, for comfort for others, like what are some uh, more of those normal feelings? Like I feel that anxiety of getting past that seven and a half weeks. And then like Sabrina, like you said, like the triggers of like an office or a doctor and ultrasound room. Like, so yeah, I was just wondering if like the date, I'm a trauma survivor, but not from loss. And those dates on the calendar are just haunting as I get closer to those dates. So is that the same with pregnancy loss?
1: Yeah, dates wow. sit heavy for us. It It's gotten a little, as far as like anniversary of dates, have gotten a little, I don't want to say easier, but I guess lighter in the sense of we still remember. I could still tell you what my very first due date was. Those things still stick with us. But I will say that now being where we're at and having our rainbow baby, not to jump forward too much, but it helps bring some comfort to know that while those were darker times for us those dates were special for us it's okay we're okay so
2: I had to have my husband throw out his shirt it was a back to the future shirt and he was wearing it the day I found out we lost Dennis Michael and then he wore it unknowingly the day I went to a regular OB appointment and I found out there was no heart rate with Emma Uh and I got home and I said throw that shirt in the trash I never want to see it again
1: yeah oh I'm so sorry Things like that really do just stick with you and become a symbol and then you see it and sometimes you don't even know it's going to trigger you or that you felt that way about it. But the moment you see it, like you said, you're like, you have to know. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's something
2: important to recognize and talk about, but in a safe space. So anyone who's gone through loss, I would make sure that you are talking to someone who, you know, can just listen and not try and fix you
1: and let you feel those things and say, it's okay. So So important. So
2: we have our HCG levels. We're soaring, doing great. Um, Did you go forward with a transvaginal ultrasound?
1: We did. So, about seven weeks, I want to say it was like seven weeks and two days, seven weeks and three days, which I was a total calendar watcher at this point. I could tell you exactly where I was in my pregnancy, and every day mattered to me. So, like some people would say, Oh, how far along are you? I was eight weeks and two days. I wasn't just eight weeks, or this was it became almost a little bit of an obsession. Like I had to talk every day counted and every day that I was still okay and I was still pregnant was a huge milestone for me. So around seven weeks, three days, I believe it was, we went in for the ultrasound and so nervous. The doctor came in and put the wand in for the transvaginal ultrasound. And right away, I took this big sigh of relief because before I even saw a heartbeat, I saw an embryo. I saw a baby on the screen. And so, okay, I didn't have a blighted ovum. Like this was the first step in the right direction. And of course he was very quick to find a heartbeat then and turn the screen to us and said, you know, this is your baby. It's a great heartbeat. I want to say the heartbeat was around 154, 150, mid 150s. Beautiful heartbeat, just where we wanted to see it. So excited. He gave us a ton of pictures to take home. We were just like on cloud nine. This is so great, but still nervous who knows, but just trying to be optimistic that it was going to work out. And at this point, I'm not a fertility patient, but he has been so kind as to see me as one in a sense and wasn't going to let me down. So he let me have ultrasounds every two weeks throughout my first trimester to check on that baby and see a heartbeat and know that things were growing and developing and it was okay. So we did do... Genetic blood work at ten weeks. I had blood work drawn to test the genetics of the baby and see if there were any genetic disorders, any problems. And one of the things you get with that is to find out the assigned gender of your baby, assigned sex of your baby.
0: Okay, perfect. I was like, I just got to make a note to to take that out. Wow. So thanks. And you'll just re say it. One of the things that you get is the assigned sex. Will you just re say that sentence?
1: Yes. One of the things you get to find out with that blood work is the assigned sex of your baby. So we were excited to know, didn't have any preferences, but couldn't wait to find out. And when the blood work came back, it said that it was a genetically normal assigned female. So we were so excited. Everything looked great. We were going to have a little girl and life was... Gonna be perfect. So moved on, graduated. At this point, too, I'm sorry, I should say, I did start seeing my regular OB as well. Around eight weeks pregnant, they saw me for the first time. But in regular OB care, they don't do ultrasounds every two weeks. And actually at this practice that I was going to at the time, they didn't even do a first trimester ultrasound. They just waited until they could hear a heartbeat with a Doppler on the outside of your belly around, I want to say we heard it for the first time that way around 12 weeks. If I'm remembering correctly. Very common. And going back to that,
2: because when you've gone through loss, you get very attached to your provider. Uh, So I can understand like the joy, especially you worked with your doctor. So like he knew everything. My doctor like held me crying both times weeping and just would hand me to my husband when my husband came, like that man has a special place in my heart always. But for some of you, you are allowed, not allowed. You can stay with a fertility doctor up through your first trimester or just a gynecologist. If your provider no longer does obstetric care, you can see them up until 13 weeks. And then that's when you need to see an obstetrician. And a high-risk doctor typically does ultrasounds more frequently, not MFM, maternal fetal medicine, but just a OB who specializes in high-risk pregnancies they tend to do more ultrasounds. Um, so yeah, just in case you're wondering or want more ultrasounds, that's who you kind of research.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I just felt like at that point, I, we needed that peace of mind. And my regular OB, I never even asked for one because I was able to get them with the fertility doctor I was working with. But I remember... Did
2: you, uh, did you buy a Doppler for home? Absolutely. Yes. How often did you listen?
1: <laughs> At first, I remember trying to use it, eight weeks and knowing, okay, I probably won't hear anything, but I have to start practicing. I don't think I was able to pick it up even at home into like 11 weeks, 10 or 11 weeks. And then I was probably listening at first every day. And then as we got a little further along, like in that, that 15, 16 week range, I probably listened like two or three times a week. <laughs> and really, I still needed the reassurance, but I tried to just let myself tried to accept that it was going well. And I needed to go with that. I did that
2: until the (laughs) delivery of my rainbow (laughs) baby.
1: It was actually a family
2: as part of story time. They all wanted to hear the heartbeat. My three kids wanted to hear the heartbeat before bed. And so, and then they would say, pray that all goes well. So it is important. So like Jenna said, If you're doing a Doppler, it's very rare to be able to hear the heartbeat consistently topically before 13 weeks. So if you have one and you happen to hear at the right angle at 11 weeks, don't panic until we're like at 14 weeks and you're not able to consistently hear it. So try not to freak yourself out. And it's important that you manage your own mental health. So if you would be obsessive to a point of cortisol levels affecting your body and not relaxing and panicking, a Doppler is probably not the right thing for you just because it might not make your mental state the best to house a baby and grow a baby. So be aware and know it yourself well enough and maybe talk to a provider or a grief counselor like this is something I want but I'm scared it would make it worse for me but I totally am with you Jenna Doppler
1: saved my
2: mental health personally
1: yeah for sure so I I definitely needed that and there were times where I didn't get it right away Like after I'd heard it for the first time, I'd lay on the couch to use it and I wouldn't find it right away. And I remember telling my husband, I need you to help hold me accountable. Don't let me spiral and search for an hour. Like that's not helping anybody. So if I don't find it in the first five minutes. I need to take a break. I need to put it away and maybe try again later. And I, there was only one or two times I think where he was like, okay, you're becoming obsessive, put it down. <laughs> and sure enough, I took a break for an hour went and did something else, came back and right away, there's the heartbeat. So yeah, I think you, like you said, you just have to kind of know where you're at mentally and set some boundaries for yourself almost. So you don't make yourself crazy with it, but instead use it for reassurance in a good way.
2: So Jenna, mm. When was your anatomy ultrasound?
1: So we were scheduled pretty much right at 20 weeks on the dot and went in for the ultrasound and we, she pulls up the screen. This is your baby, beautiful heartbeat. And then she starts taking a ton of measurements. And she said, are you sure about your dates? And I said, Yeah the whole pregnancy, I've been pretty sure. And I've had a lot of ultrasounds. Everything's always lined up. And she said, your baby's really small. She's measuring 17-ish weeks, 16, 17 weeks. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's strange. I don't know. Well, she's always measured appropriately. And at this point I look at my husband and I get really nervous. Uh, I could see her heartbeat. So I know she's okay, but why is she measuring so small? So the ultrasound tech takes a few more pictures and then she turns off the screen and says, I'm going to go get the doctor. And she walked out and this was maybe after like, seven or eight minutes of an ultrasound. And now I knew that an anatomy scan should be much more in depth and take a lot longer. So I knew whatever she was seeing was not what she wanted to see. And so she walks out of the room and I look at my husband and he's crying. And I was like, don't freak out yet. We just, you don't know, like maybe, maybe she's just a small baby. Maybe they're gonna tell us that she has dwarfism or some kind of growth restriction, or like she has a heartbeat. We can deal with like, whatever it is. We'll be okay. We'll make it work. And so the ultrasound tech comes back for us and says, I'm going to move you to another room. Okay. So she moves us to another room and we're sitting in there for what feels like forever. And it's maybe, I don't know, a couple minutes and the doctor comes in and she sits down and she says, your baby's measuring really small and her heart is abnormal and she has what we call high drops, which means that she has a ton of fluid build up around her brain, around her lungs, Just her whole body is filled with fluid. And she said, this is not good. She said, I want to get you in to see maternal fetal medicine today. Can you go there next? And I said, of course. So she, come, she leaves the room. And <laughs> At this point, I immediately call my dad sobbing and I said because they knew I was having my anatomy scan and I said dad I don't know exactly what's wrong but things aren't good the baby's alive but I don't think for it long and I need you to call and tell mom and he said okay whatever you need me to do and I said I got to go the doctor's coming back but I need you to call and tell mom I and I'm very close with my mom but I couldn't have that conversation with her I couldn't tell her that this wasn't going to be good, but I needed them. And I needed them to know I've always been super close with my parents. And so in the middle of the appointment, before I have answers, I'm calling to tell them something's not right. So the doctor comes back and she said, I talked to maternal fetal medicine. We're going to send you right over there. They're thinking that your baby has Turner syndrome. And I had heard of this a little bit because actually a lot of women born with Turner syndrome who do go on and live, a semi-normal life, tend to have fertility issues. So I had seen fertility patients with Turner syndrome. So in my mind, I was a little like, okay, like, well, this, I mean, she could be okay. I don't know. I don't know what's happening right now. And my OB said, I just want to prepare you. Maternal fetal medicine is probably going to talk with you about your options here to either continue the pregnancy until the baby's heart stops or to end the pregnancy, to go have an abortion. My husband and I just looked at each other like, okay, Uh, I guess we're going to go talk to maternal fetal medicine. Not really completely understanding everything that's going on. We're getting bits and pieces. It feels like confused, emotional, something's not good, but not exactly sure. So we go over to maternal fetal medicine. They do a very in-depth scan and the doctor comes in and says, I am 99% positive that your baby has Turner syndrome. And that is for some babies, it can be mild and they can be born and be live semi-normal lives and be healthy. The problem is your baby's heart is failing. He said, if you watch your baby's heart rate on the screen, one minute, it's 60 And the next minute it's 180 and then it's 50 and then it's 200. And she's jumping all over the place. She's so backed up with fluid and her heart is failing. And he said, I would put a 99% guarantee on it that she has Turner syndrome, but we won't know. He said, I can't offer you an amnio because you don't have amniotic fluid. He said, the only thing we can do at this point is to either send you to another state to end the pregnancy, because I guess in the state of Ohio, you can't choose to have an induction while your baby still has a heartbeat at this point at 20 weeks, or we can just wait and see what happens. The only risk to you is that you're carrying a sick baby. And if she would pass, your body could start to show signs of preeclampsia. So we'll have to keep a close eye on you. And I said, okay, we're going to go ahead and, continue on with the pregnancy and just kind of wait and see what happens. He said, I would almost guarantee you that within the next month, your baby will lose her heartbeat because of how bad her heart looks right now. But he said, I also can't guarantee you that you won't deliver a full-term baby in April who's alive and that will pass away shortly after birth. And so we just went home with all these heavy feelings and unknowns and uh, not really sure what to do with all this information. And to make it that much better, this was two weeks before Christmas in 2019. And I decided at that point that I wasn't going to return to work for the time being. I just needed to be home and process and deal with all this. So I went into the doctor. Twice a week was the plan to look for fetal heart tones, check my blood pressure and make sure things were okay. So I went three times before Christmas and, and that is considered perinatal
2: hospice. So when the doctor tells you, we don't know if the baby will pass now, or you deliver a healthy baby that will eventually pass like full term, you would be referred to like perinatal hospice and therapy groups, different things to support you. So when you know your baby won't make it that, and then you start seeing them twice a week, like you said.
1: Yeah. And I just remember that Christmas too, things were so heavy. Family didn't know what to say because here I am sitting with this almost 22 week bump and people had bought her presents and just a lot of emotion. And I remember my husband's grandma giving me a hug at Christmas and just, starting to cry. And she just said, I don't know what to say. And it was just this heavy experience in the room all around. And I was at this point, I didn't know what to say either, because I didn't know what the future held. But my husband and I had started to come to terms with the fact that this was not going to be a baby that we got to raise, that we would get to have a life with forever. And so the day after Christmas, I went in for another check and she came in and put the Doppler on my stomach. And she said, I don't, I'm not finding a heartbeat. And I almost had a little bit of a sigh of relief. I think because I knew that this is where this was going. And it almost felt like that more, of course I wanted every minute with her And every minute with her inside of me, but I couldn't change the outcome. And so to drag it on in a sense, it just, it wasn't going to change where we were. So they sent me for an ultrasound in the same office, next room over, whatever, right away to confirm she had no heartbeat. And they said, go ahead and go home and pack a bag, get something to eat. And when you're ready, head up to the hospital for an induction. We're going to deliver the baby. So I said, okay. So I called my parents. They were going to come and stay at our house with our dogs because we didn't really know how long this would take. At this point, I was 22 weeks along and my body was not recognizing that I was getting ready to deliver a baby. So I had a cervix that was closed, not dilated, was thick and high and not doing anything yet. So my husband and I packed some bags and... We got Chick-fil-A and we headed into the hospital. They checked us in. They were really good about talking with us about what was happening and the process and what we would be going through. Put in my IV, decided to get things started with sight attack, which are prostaglandin pills that they insert vaginally to try to start ripening and softening your cervix. I'd known a little bit about it from being a nurse before, but didn't, never experienced it, of course. So they put the Cytotec in. So the Cytotec, did they tell you it's a higher dose
2: than what they do for full-term babies?
1: They didn't at the time. (laughs) So when you
2: are going in for a delivery, uh, a baby with no heart rate, it is a higher dose than what you get for a regular full-term induction. Did they make you sign a paper saying you were having an abortion?
1: They did not.
2: Okay. Sometimes, depending on your state, you have to do that. Here in North Carolina, I had to sign a paper saying I was having an abortion and that sent me spiraling and yelling at people like I am not having an abortion. That's not what I'm choosing. So it's important to be aware medically of what they tell you
1: Absolutely. and what's happening. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. The side attack, how long did it take
2: to feel things on the side attack?
1: <laughs> so they were going to put a dose in every four hours. So I want to say we did my first dose like around eight o'clock that night. Wasn't a big deal. They came back at around midnight Did the second round. Wasn't a huge deal, but then around 2 AM, I was really crampy, but not in the, not that like I was expecting, but I had to use the restroom and I got up. And at this point, my husband had fallen asleep on the couch and I didn't really say much because I wasn't, I didn't know how long this was going to be, what was going on. I just needed to go to the bathroom and for the next two hours I would walk into the bathroom, have diarrhea, go back to the bed. Oh no, go back to the bathroom, have diarrhea. I pretty much spent the next two hours on the toilet, miserable. And so they came back in at 4 a.m. to do a second dose. And the nurse said, how's it going? And I was like, I don't feel like a lot of pain as far as contractions or anything, but I cannot get out of the bathroom. And they told me that that was strange and that they d- didn't know why that would be happening. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think it's from the medicine. Like I've, this is really intense, but I think it's from the medication. And they were like, eh, you, it'll be fine. Okay. So they did another round of attack at 4am and I couldn't even I, after you get a dose of side attack, they want you to lay in bed for an hour time to like get up in there and work before you're standing up. And I couldn't, I remember not even 15 minutes later, I was up into the bathroom and then I woke up my husband because I was calling for something to vomit in because I was sitting on the toilet and I was like, I am so sick. And he was like, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, I can't get out of the bathroom. Like, I feel okay. Other than I feel horrible with GI stuff going on. So they came back to do another dose. And I said, no, (laughs) this is making me feel like crap. I'm not doing another dose. Now I'm so nauseous. I'm vomiting and can't get off the toilet. I said, I need like a modium or something and something for the nausea and I need a break. I'm not doing this again. What are we in a hurry for? And I remember the nurse just looked at me like she couldn't believe I just said that. And I was like, I mean, let's be honest. We're not watching a baby here. Like, why should I be this miserable? I need help. Like, I need you to give me something and try to make this a little bit of a less miserable experience. So right away they went to like, do you want an epidural? This and that. I was like, no, I'm not in that kind of pain. I just want my stomach to calm down. So finally, after a lot of arguing with a resident who told me that side attack doesn't cause your stomach to be upset, I got some Imodium and Zofran and I took an hour nap and then I was ready to talk with them again. And I said, we're doing, we have to do something else. It can't be tech anymore. This is miserable. And so they checked me and they said, you're maybe a centimeter. Maybe we could probably get a Foley balloon in. And I said, okay, like that's something else. That's fine. Let's just do that. So um, they did um, this. Sorry. Just so, so it for sure was the attack
2: <laughs> for the audience. Cytotech for some birthing people, causes raging diarrhea yeah so it's a possibility uh pros and cons uh of things it's the standard protocol but it for sure causes diarrhea so if you weren't crazy they <laughs> just weren't listening to you
1: Yeah. And I eventually pulled up an article on my phone and I was like, look, it can cause GI upset. I'm telling you. So I was probably very annoying to them, but I didn't care. So we kept going. So they put the Foley bulb in and they were going to start Pitocin at the same time. And I was okay with that. I wasn't feeling pain other than the GI cramps from upset stomach so all this happened let's see they piped the Foley bulb in and started put like around 9 or 9 30 in the morning now was it a Foley bulb or a cook's catheter so did it have like two
2: did they fill up like two balloons or only one balloon only one okay so that was a Foley bulb which goes through the cervix and inside the vagina or not inside through the edit that out Heidi it goes through, <laughs> through the vagina, past the cervix, and then in the uterus, and it fills up about 60 cc's, and it can get you to like three centimeters. A cook catheter also has a balloon on the vagina side of the cervix, so it like sandwiches. So some providers and hospitals are going only to the cook, but they still call it a foley, which is why I asked for that, because the cook feels like a giant ball in your vagina. So the sensation is very different. Did they tell you how far along the Foley could get you? Like how far?
1: They told me to expect three to four centimeters. And at this point, they also reiterated to me, which I had known that that may even be far enough, that when the Foley bulb came out, I might be close to delivering that I probably didn't need to get to a full 10 centimeters because I had a baby inside of me who was the size of a 16 or 17 weeker. And so she, she was probably going to deliver without a fully dilated cervix. Yeah. And did they offer you any pain management? Yes. So they had tried to give me to take an epidural when I was complaining about the GI upset. And I said, no. And I said, my goal is not to take an epidural. So then they asked if I wanted like a morphine PCA pump where I could hit the button to give myself some doses if I needed it. And I said, I'd let them know that I really wasn't feeling much at this point And I didn't think I needed it. So we did the Pitocin and the Foley bulb and around like just before noon, I stood up to go to the bathroom. I just had to pee. Thank God the diarrhea and the vomiting was over. And my water broke and the Foley bulb fell out onto the floor. And I pushed my nurse button and in comes some other nurse because my nurse just so happens to be at lunch. And she's like, oh, honey, sit down. It looks like your Foley bulb fell out. Mm -hmm. And I said, I understand, but I think my water broke. Like I felt a big pop. And everything's wet. And I was kind of surprised because during at maternal fetal medicine, they told me I had no amniotic fluid and that I couldn't do an amnio because of that. So to me, when my water broke, I didn't really think I'd have a whole lot of fluid come out, but it was rivers running out of fluid all over the place. So I was a little dumbfounded and I said to the nurse, I don't know, I'm not supposed to have a lot of amniotic fluid, but I don't know what else would be happening. And it was very unhelpful and a nurse who didn't really know much about what was going on. And she was just like, okay, well, get back in bed and I'll send the doctor in to check on your baby. I was like, you don't need to. I'm having a 22 week baby without a heartbeat. It's fine. Just document that my water broke. And when my nurse gets back, let her know. And at this point, I'm just annoyed because you're telling me my water didn't break. You're telling me to just get in bed. You'll send someone in to check on me and the baby. And you don't even know what's happening. So just leave, please. That's not really fair of the hospital to have done that
2: to you. And I know that nurse was probably not aware, but at our local hospital, when we have a loss happening, they have a picture of a leaf and like rain and a teardrop. And that is the universal loss. And so it is on the door every time. And when I go into support bereavement, I also make a sign that says, do not ask about the baby. Do not talk to me about how I'm feeling. I'll let you know what I need just so that you don't get triggered even more so and be like,
0: what are you having?
2: What's going on? So I'm sorry that even though she probably wasn't intentionally hurtful, that was still hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was. And I felt, I actually felt bad. Like 10 minutes later, I looked at my husband and I was like, I think I was kind of mean to her. And he was like, I think that's okay. And I was like, well, I feel bad. So anyhow, at this point I had called my mom and dad and I said, I don't really know. Like I'm just sitting here. They were about 10 minutes away at my house. I said, why don't you just come up to the hospital and hang out with us a little bit? Cause nothing's really, ha- I don't feel anything. I don't know. Like the Foley bulb came out. We just have Pitocin going. I don't feel much. Um, so they came and I actually asked my dad, I said, why don't you go for a walk with my husband and get some food from the cafeteria? He hasn't eaten. Mom can hang out with me. It's fine. So they did. And maybe about five minutes after they left, I told my mom, I said, Hey, I got to get up and pee. And I stood up and I went to the bathroom and as I was on the toilet, I felt a lot of pressure in my vagina and I ran back to the bed and I said, mom, I'm having the baby. And I pushed the call light, and the resident came in and he was like, yes, you know, she's right here. Can you just give me one little push? And I said, yeah. And I did. And she came flying out. And I just remember looking at my mom who's sobbing at this point. And I was like, just call Joey, call Joey, which is my husband. And I always say it was probably a blessing in disguise that he ended up not being in the room because he's not very good with like blood and fluids and things like that. So it's probably a blessing in disguise that he wasn't there, but he rushed back, of course. And was back in the room within a few minutes. And I remember just saying to the doctor, just give her to me. And he was like, oh, they'll take her and put her in a blanket and blah, blah, blah. Are you sure you want to hold her? And I said, yes, I told them, like, I want her, give her to me. And he was like, she doesn't look like a normal baby, like a full-term baby, like what you're probably thinking a baby looks like. And I said, I know I've delivered some stillborns as a nurse. Like I I know they don't look like a full-term baby. I just want my baby. And I was so upset that I'm laying here begging for you to give me my baby that I just delivered. So after a few minutes, they finally hand her to me wrapped up in a blanket. And just about the same time as my husband was walking back in the room, and my parents stepped out. I kind of all without me even really realizing what was happening. And before I knew it, my husband was at my side and we're just crying, looking at this precious little baby that we delivered. And I'll never forget looking at her for the first time and thinking, like, I see my husband in her. She looked, I said, she looks like you. And he said, that's funny. I think she looks like you. And um, just didn't even know what to do from here. Nobody was going to take her back away from me. I held her for the next three to four hours, they kept coming in and out, checking for the delivery of the placenta and it wasn't happening. And so after about four, four and a half hours, they said, oh, we really need to take you for a DNC to get the placenta out. It's not coming on its own and it could turn into a bleeding problem, etc." cetera. And I just remember saying, can I take her with me? And they were like, no, your family can stay in the room with her if you want, but she can't go to the OR with you. And Did um, they give you a cooling pad? They did. Yeah. But I don't, I never set her on it. (laughs) Um, I have some pictures of me like napping afterwards and just holding her in this blanket. I would barely let my husband hold her and I feel bad after, but he was okay. He held her for a minute or two, but his coping was more... He didn't want to spend a lot of time holding her. And in his emotional grief and processing, that wasn't what he needed. So he let me have her. And so I remember just saying, like, okay, you could take me for the DNC, but don't leave her side like to my husband and my parents. Like just stay with her. And so this she was born like 12:35 in the afternoon. And this was just before five o'clock in the evening that they were going to take me for the DNC. And they sent anesthesia in and <laughs> She said, I need to give you a, a spinal for your DNC. And I was like, please, <laughs> I don't, I didn't want anything. Can you just do it? Like, can you just give me some pain medicine and do it? And she was like, no. And I was like, well, okay. And I had a DNC after my last loss. They put me under. Can you just do that? Like, I didn't want an epidural. I'm terrified of the needle going into my back. Please. I don't want a spinal. She was like, honey, you need to do a spinal you want to go home tonight. Right. And I was like, well, ideally, sure. But okay. So the, I was told I really didn't have a choice. The spinal was the option and that's what we needed to do. And I said, okay, I'm terrified. So they ended up giving me something for anxiety in my IV and within that. So from there, I don't, a lot of it's spotty from that point on. I don't, It was
2: probably versed.
1: Yeah. So I don't remember a lot of it. I vaguely remember being in the OR. I vaguely remember sitting on the table for the spinal. They did the DNC to remove the placenta. And like the next thing that I have strong memories of again is being in recovery and my husband being there. And I said, oh, sorry. It is quite
2: common for a retained placenta in these situations. I had one with my second and I would say about 50% of my bereavement clients have retained placenta because your body just isn't letting go. Yeah. So it is common and don't be surprised if you went through that or thought you were alone in our audience, but I'm glad they brought your husband to you in recovery. Was did they let you recover in your room or it was in like po- the pack you?
1: It was like in their PACU area, which also meant that across from me was a mom from a C-section with her baby. And I remember just saying, "I just want to go back to my room. I just want to go back to my room." And where Scarlet, which is what we chose to name her, because before I went to surgery, I told my husband, "You stay with her." And so here he is, without her. And I said, "Where's Scarlet?" And he said, "She's with you. your mom and dad are in there with her." And I said, "Okay." And so I got them to just take me back to my room finally. And I had the hardest time getting feeling back in my legs. So this was all said and done. I remember being back in my room, maybe around six or 6.30. They had went and gotten me Mexican food because the whole time I was pregnant, I just missed eating cheese dip. Like I just wanted cheese dip. So they went and got me Mexican food and I had a nice container of cheese dip waiting for me after that DNC. I couldn't feel my legs for a long time after that spinal. So I just sat in in my room, recovering, eating, holding Scarlett. We did some pictures with her. Now, I will say at this point, so many hours later, she looked different. And I always say now to my husband that I wish I took more pictures right away because she had changed so much in that two hours that I was gone for surgery. She changed and she looked different. And I wish I had more pictures of her right away. I do have some but not as many. And like, we didn't take a family picture until after. And it's still special and it still means a lot. But even on that cooling blanket while I was in surgery, she had started to decay. And so her features were different and she just was looking different. And so we just recovered. I hung out and held her and uh, took a few hours and probably close to like nine 9.30 at night, the nurse came in and I was able to mostly walk, (laughs) limp my way around. I could mostly feel my legs again, but they were a little like pins and needles at this point, but I could get up. And at this point I was exhausted and I just wanted to go home. And so they, they sent me up, set me up for discharge. And around 10 o'clock that night, I left the hospital, but it was really hard. And I can't tell you how many times I turned around and like thought we were going to leave, but I was like, just hold on a second. And they had to go back and hold her again and saying goodbye to her and leaving her there just felt so heavy. Everything that I waited my whole life for and to be this first baby that I get to see and hold and she's not okay. And she's not coming home and she's not alive. And I, didn't know how to walk away from her. I didn't know how to leave her and go home empty-handed. And
2: that's a really empty-handed. Your arms feel empty because they're supposed to be full. And anytime I walk this journey, I actually bring a teddy bear that weighs about the same as a baby should for you to wrap up in a blanket to carry out of the hospital. Because I feel like it's the only way to walk out those doors. Yeah. So looking back is quite common and you need something to hold at night when you should be nursing.
1: Yeah, I had chosen a blanket from home that we had for her because I had found out back at 10 weeks that we were expecting to give birth to a baby girl. And so we had a ton of stuff and I brought a special blanket for her to the hospital and I wrapped her in it and I held her in it. And um, still to this day, that blanket is on my nightstand. It's never far, but probably for the first couple months after coming home without her, I slept with that blanket because I didn't have her, but I had this small piece of something that was hers. Have you washed it? (laughs) I did because it was yucky. Like it had blood and fluids on it from wrapping her in it. But I- I'm
2: glad I didn't wash. I just was like, I need to see the blood on the blanket to know that they were real. Yeah. But it's not uh, as messy as yours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I had pre-washed it because I was- getting all of her stuff ready, like a mad woman at 18 weeks. So it had already been washed in like baby detergent. So of course I made my husband go buy more and that's what I washed it in afterwards because it needed to smell the same. And every now and then I'll throw it in the washer still. And it has like, I don't even use that detergent on my son's clothes, but we have to go buy it when it's time to wash Scarlett's blanket. So it's just special, but yeah, you don't realize how it's going to feel to walk Mm -hmm. out of the hospital and go home and your belly's still big. I still had this big baby bump. Everything still felt heavy, but there was no baby inside anymore. But there also wasn't a baby outside for me to bring home. And I just remember going home that night and being so tired and just crawling up in bed with her blanket at that point and crying and just telling my husband, I just don't know what we're going to do now.
0: So Jenna, yeah, there is a rainbow baby. So like going from that moment of, I just don't know what we're going to do here to the life that you have right now, which I know not everyone who has this story has the gift of a rainbow baby, but audience, if you will stick around for part two, Jenna is going to share her story of overcoming these experiences, getting pregnant again, carrying a baby to full term, having that rainbow baby, and now being a stay-at-home mom. So I really hope that you will stick around for part two. And Jenna and Sabrina, I'm just so thankful for you guys being here today, being so vulnerable and sharing your stories an honor of Scarlett and Emma and Dennis Michael, thank you so much. Okay, I have a really amazing discount for you guys with Anjahealth.com. So it's A-N-J-A health.com. They are my exclusive partner for cord blood and tissue banking. If you've listened to episode 88 of the podcast where I interview the CEO, Catherine Cross, all about cord blood and tissue banking and the 1,000 questions that I had. My child has cerebral palsy. From a birth injury. I cannot go back in time. It is one of my greatest regrets. So I partner with Anja Health because I'm so passionate about cord blood and tissue banking and I really want to teach you guys all about it. Code Birth Story gives you the biggest discount that there is available, and they are committed to Birth Story always being the biggest discount. So, right now, it makes your kit only $20, which essentially covers shipping. So, it's $180 off with Code Birth Story. So, please consider cord blood and tissue banking. Look at anjahealth.com. Again, it's A N J A Health. Dot com. And if you are going to bank your cord blood and tissue, then please use code birthstory so you get the biggest and best discount that is available. Thank you for being part of the Birth Story family and listening to this episode. On Tuesdays every week, our doula diaries, little snippets and tidbits from my week, along with some teaching and education. And then on Thursdays, we meet here for our birth stories and our expert speakers. So thank you for being here and listening to the podcast twice a week. And if you are left wanting more like Heidi, I've listened to all the episodes, I've read your entire book, then I hope you will meet me in Birth Story Academy and let me be your online childbirth educator to prepare you for your hospital birth, no matter what that looks like.